Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and boy, do I have a guest for you today. I'm with Kevin. Kevin, how are you? Great. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, I know we've been talking about this for, you know, a month or two already. And so, yeah, it's super great to be here finally. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for being on the show, actually, because I mean, like, we talk about this all the time because I definitely never have the opportunity to talk to people that are so involved in machine learning, AI. And you, when, when you hear people say these kind of words, like everybody wants to know a bit more about it. And this is exactly me trying yeah, to get more yeah. out of it. So yeah, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, super happy to you know jump, jump right into these topics. Cool stuff. So I mean, like, I mean, the people read the title, they know, they know slightly what we're going to get into. But Kevin, what do you do nowadays? And I think more importantly, how do you know me? Right, so currently I'm at Notable Healthcare as a machine learning engineer. Um, started here uh, towards the end of 2019, so I've been here about three, four months. And Perry, my good buddy, he sits right next to me. So, you know, we get to see each other and poke fun at each other every day. So, And managed to convince you to get on this show <laughs> <laughs> so that we could talk even more about the crazy stuff we do every day. Yeah. But yeah, that's always, um, I feel this is more like a random coincidence because like I, I, even before meeting you, I've always wanted to have at least one data or ML engineer mm. on, on the show. Mm. And even today, I don't even know what's the difference between a data engineer and a ML engineer, or even mm. like a data scientist versus There's a data that too, engineer. Yes. So what yes. is that? That's four different combinations or something? Yeah, I mean, the, the names and titles keep evolving uh, throughout, you know, probably the past 10 years. Um, data science, I think, really started, you know, in the early 2010s. Okay. Uh, before then, I think people doing this is either like a data analyst or a statistician. Uh, and then data science becomes kind of a more, you know, trendy uh, in the mid 2010s when you have, you know, big data technologies and a lot more uh, machine learning and experimentation methods that are became available. So there's data science. Machine learning is actually even newer than that. I think it becomes more trendy in the past three to four years. Um, as you know, deep learning methods and you know some of the newer AI techniques become you know uh, more and more popular. Oh my God! Like I'm, I'm I'm more than excited to get into that. Yeah, yeah. I think like I think actually, what what would you consider yourself? Would you consider yourself a? Oh, let me get this right. Data data scientist or data engineer or ML scientist or ML engineer. <laughs> um, I think the work currently at Notable is does most resemble a machine learning engineer. Um, if you think about a data scientist, I think more traditionally, it's more based on data analytics. So that's the first level. And more about um, running A-B testing. Um, so yeah. if you have like you know different websites, designs that you want to test on your users, uh, you would run a, uh, an experiment to, uh, a design of the experiment to tease out which uh, method works better. So that's, you know, typically what data scientists do. Uh, machine learning engineer is really more about uh, building software applications to do prediction. So we care more about the predictive outcomes than, you know, uh, what decisions may be better for, you know, executives. Yeah, or whatever use case or the actual business model that we're right. looking at at the end. But also, right. like, my original question was kind of, it's slightly flawed just because, like, they're not mutually, <laughs> mutually exclusive, you know what yeah. I mean? You can be a yeah. bit of everything. And then, yes. I mean, 
it does make sense that today nowadays you might consider that your work is more geared towards like being an ML engineer, but there's definitely instances where you've got to have to put your data analyst hat on and just think Absolutely. it all about stuff. So. It's all part of the yeah the toolbox. That's, Man, that's I wish stuff. I wish I got into that. Like <laughs> so I like I'm I'm just a regular software engineer uh, compared to all of it. So um, I think what what people would be interested in is how did this all start? As in like at what point did, did you become a data analyst or a ML engineer or all that, and I think like to to kind of figure this out. A lot of times, the way I do is that like we just trace back a bit, you know, trace back at like see if there's anything pre prior in your life that kind of made you go toward that. So I think like something that's interesting is um where where are you from originally, and like where have you lived in the past couple of years, just to have a bit of context. Yeah, so I grew up. Uh, I was born in Taiwan. Um, I was in Taiwan until I was um, eleven. And so kind of my formative years were, were spent in Taiwan. And, you know, at least I got to learn a bit of Chinese and uh, could, you know, converse well enough in Chinese. Um, so, and then my family decided to move to New Zealand for junior high and high school. So that's kind of where I did uh, that, that period of my time. Um, afterwards, I went to uh, Northwestern in the U.S. for my undergrad um, so that's kind of the the journey um, in those early years. That's so cool because um, I think I think what is quite relatable is that you have these uh, families from like these Asian cities, Asian countries, and when they want to immigrate out of it, um, I think the top three option, like I don't know if it's a stereotype, but you have like Canada, mm -hmm. and I think Australia is another big one, and like in third place is like New Zealand and U.S. is like kind of you know in that mm -hmm. marsh or whatever. So it's so fun to see somebody because I know I know people that have their original roots like back in Hong Kong or Taiwan or like, you know, in these Asian cities. And my family immigrated to Canada, so mm. we're one of them. We knew other people that immigrated to, to Australia and, and some other people went to the US, but I've never met any <laughs> Asian family that like immigrated to New Zealand. So like, that's why, yeah. that's why I think it's, you know, already a cool, cool point. You don't have the English New Zealand accent though. Uh, was that intentional or was that? Yeah, I I think personally, I'm just, I don't know. I I, I don't have a really good way to keep an accent. I tend to just adapt to whatever is happening around me. Uh, I certainly wish I had, you know, some, some New Zealand accent now, but I've been in the U.S. Uh, I think close to 15 years and yeah, uh, it's, it's gotten uh, the best of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after 15 years, I feel like anybody would, you know, would, would end up losing it or changing it at that point. I mean, for me, it's the same, it's the same, same battle. When I moved to the UK, it was always like the first maybe year, year or two, I'm like, I'm going to keep my Canadian accent. I'm going to keep it forever. <laughs> then I'm like, by the time I moved to the US, I keep on saying so many random words. Like, what was it earlier today? It said like, Oh yeah, uh, they chucked it, which means that they threw it away. And then people were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, <laughs> got to re-explain everything from scratch now. So, hey, at least you got a bit more common because New Zealand sounds a little bit more like, you know. Um, the... I, think, I think it's a mix between British accent and the U.S. It's And, and a bit of Australian. And, and Aust yeah, yeah. It's, it's very close to Australian. Um, yeah, I could, I could confidently, yeah. Say, confidently say that the first time I moved to the U.K., obviously didn't understand anybody. So... Uh, Australian, New Zealand, uh, mm. English, Welsh, Scottish, they all sounded the same to me. That's very offensive, but uh, as somebody, you know, completely new there, that's basically what it was. But then, like, I think by the time, by the time I'm, I guess, left the UK, mm. I'm quite confident to say I could distinguish, like, somebody that sounds more New Zealand or somebody that sounds more Australian. And is it good for anything? I don't think so. But, I mean, <laughs> that's way off the point of what we're doing today. Um, but, yeah, so I think a lot of things that uh, usually happens is, so you spent a good chunk of your high school uh, years in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, towards the end of high school, that's where you kind of choose, like, your topics and everything. Yeah. 
Did, were you were you in kind of the same mindset of always going into sciences, and that kind of led to I guess what you're doing today, or was that just a special case back then? Yeah, I think in high school, you know, math and science always just somehow appealed to me. You know, actually, since since I was pretty pretty small, um, it may have something to do with like my parents just had a bunch of you know science books and magazines laying around at home, and I just tend to pick them up over time. Um, but I think the a really formative experience I had in high school was, I think maybe it was junior or senior year. Um, I had two extremely uh, motivating and inspiring physics teachers. Uh, one of them was very animated, and he can make everything you know just sound like really exciting. Uh, the other physics teacher is very, um, uh, very thorough, very detailed, and you can really understand how he approaches problems in a very uh, um, thoughtful way. And so that had a big, big impact on me. Um, I eventually chose to go into electrical engineering uh, for college, uh, mostly due to a, um, th at that time, there was a, a science kind of project competition uh, in New Zealand. It's called the uh, Crest. And there's two levels, one is silver, one is gold. And our class, uh, so, so the physics teacher decided to sign everybody up to do this uh, Silver Crest project. And so I, I partnered up with uh, a friend of mine uh, and we had this wild idea of building a, our own maglev train. And so we you know, did our own research. We ordered a bunch of like huge magnets online. Um, we looked up like electronic circuits on how to build uh, induction motors to like drive this little train forward. So that was uh, an experience that told me how exciting is like building, you know, physical electronics and, and uh, um, physical objects. So since then, I, I was like, yeah, uh, electrical engineering is like just so cool. That's yeah, because I mean, like the the it's very rewarding. You don't have to wait. You know, well, like I'm, the comparison is nowadays when you do something, it's like you got to wait till it compiles. You got to wait till like some some result <laughs> happens later on down the line but like if you look at back then how simple it was it was something that you built and like it <laughs> works and all that i'm actually quite interested with the what you just mentioned with crest actually is that like a national thing that they had available in the in new zealand it's uh i think it is national i think it's uh um, organized by the royal society of new zealand okay um so yeah uh, it's uh, across high schools um students can form teams and participate and you get a you know you get a, an award at the end. That's really great. Does everybody get an award or only the, the There people? are judges that come by. So you, you know, at the end of the project, you present, you do a demo of your thing yeah. uh, when they're on site. And yeah, you either get the award or not. That's, that's really great because it's really encouraging. And as I think as you were mentioning, so uh, they signed everybody up. So everybody really got, you know, the chance to do it willing or not. But <laughs> yeah. I think at the end of the day, I feel like these kind of people or these kind of program that like pushes you to you know mm -hmm. do something sometimes like you know you there's always the kids that don't want to do it but then they end up finding out something that they're like oh I can build like a speaker or something out of like coils and stuff I did that during high school not intentionally um, it really just impacts them you know mm -hmm. it really just like lets them understand what's cool what's not cool at the end so mm -hmm. um, context wise how old was it was it just anybody in high school so from whatever like toy age 12 to 17 or is it? I think it's usually between 16 and 18. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, which is junior and senior year. Yeah, which is quite an age you get 
impacted? Because as you were saying, like stuff like this, like kind of helped you make the decision for the next bit of your life, I guess, at that point. So um, yeah, that's actually pretty cool because you said after high school, you studied in the US. So mm -hmm. that is a big jump. That is a, that is a big, It's, big. It was, it was. I remember when I was trying to apply to the US, I literally couldn't even find information on how to do it bring yeah bring us into the mindset of like what <laughs> what were you like 17 like yeah. barely even and like what was the mindset of back then of like like there was a there was a drive of going out into the world you know what i mean there was a drive there so what what did you, what did you do what kind of option you saw and like how mm -hmm. did that go yeah i think it, it was understood that you know new zealand is is a great place for you know tourism there's a lot of biotech uh, research and you know farming But at that time, I felt like if I wanted to go into, um, you know, high tech, um, whether it's um, in physics or engineering, uh, the U.S. Is, is the place to be. So that's that kind of drove my decision to, to you know, try and try and get to the U.S. Um, I remember out of my entire school, I was the only one that applied uh, to the U.S. And I think our, our grade had. Uh, you know, 500 students. Oh, wow. So it was, it was really rare. Um, and But, yeah, like even getting, uh, like figuring out all the application materials, like what tests you have to take. It's not like you have a, you know, school counselor who just, you know, hands you all the information. Yeah. Um, and at that time, you know, internet is just like, there is internet, but not that easy to, to find, you know, things on it. So yeah, it took a bit of effort to, to kind of pull everything together. I was gonna say because like the number the number that you just gave one kid out of 500 applied we're not even talking about one kid out of 500 that made it we're talking about one kid out of 500 that even just applied to begin with that is a crazy number <laughs> so you really I, i don't know what was going going on in your head but like you had such a drive back then that no 16 17 year old like share well not none of us like none of the 16 17 but like a lot of us would never have this drive at that age specifically to you know do do stuff like that so that's already pretty impressive and then you were saying that were there extra tests you had to take on top of all the ones that you took during high school already right i mean it's the standard ones you know uh, sat toefl um as in like the, did the 499 of the kids had to do those as well or no 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 okay so, so the sat is only if you apply for you know u.s colleges right and, and we also have our um Know, national exam okay. for like New Zealand you know, university entrance. So there's another set of tests. I oh, so you still got to do that anyways, oh, yeah. even if you're not going to yeah. a New Zealand university. That's right. I mean, you got to cover your base of it. So <laughs> that must be nerve wracking because I could imagine that if you're applying to a couple of different schools in the US, the time you get a response back is slightly further. I don't know if it's true or not, but like just because you're so far away that you, you know, By the time you get a response, it's a couple of days later than most people would. But I don't think it affects it that much. But there is um, a, a good part about applying from New Zealand in that um, the school year actually ends in January. Whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> Nobody told me about this. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the school year actually doesn't is uh, it, it starts in January and ends at January. I think uh, December or January. But yeah, it's it's there's a half year lag between the New Zealand school year and and the uh, the U.S. system. So yeah, actually after I graduated, I had like half a year uh, off because I already, you know, got my off letter and yeah, there's a half a year to, um, I went back to Taiwan actually uh, for that half a year. Yeah, but <laughs> nobody told me about this. Nobody <laughs> told me that like they're delayed by half a year kind of thing. I'd, 
the top of my head, is there a reason why? I don't know. I don't know if you know, but is there a reason why they're just I'm different? I'm not sure. Is it not? Is it not that way in the UK? I would. I, I don't would think I, that New Zealand would follow the. No, the I think British the UK system. is usually like they start in September and ends like. Huh. Well, I'm not going to speak for a country that I didn't like grow up in. But I'm pretty sure they're in the standard like September to I guess June and then every other yeah. month. Like, okay, the New Zealand fact, like I had no idea. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me, but I guess that's how they do it. it. It might it might be beneficial. They might you know they might have some reasoning, but I'm definitely gonna dig into that <laughs> on my own time at that point. But um, but yeah, after that bit. So who who was the lucky university to have you then? Who which university was the lucky one? Yeah, I ended up to? going to Northwestern in Illinois. Uh, it's about an hour north of Chicago. So uh, Northwestern, they have a very strong material science program. Well, at that time, I wasn't really interested in material science, so uh, I, I stick with, uh, stuck with electrical engineering um, at that time. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually pretty cool um, in terms of, I mean, just a lifestyle change. Let's, let's talk about first, like talk about that first in terms of like, uh, so you were still living with your parents in New Zealand kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. uh, when you, I guess, decided to, to go to university in the States. It's basically, you, you had to go through the whole dorm system again, mm-hmm. or? Yeah, yeah, Okay. lived in dorms uh, all four years. Was that on the campus? On campus, yep, yep. Was that close to Chicago? How close were you to Chicago? Did you have like time to like go to visit a city while you're at it? Or was it just a completely I secluded campus? I probably went to Chicago like less than 10 times <laughs> in, 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 total, in the four like, years that I, in the four I was there. It's just, the <laughs> transportation was really or if you didn't have a car, essentially you have to take the L. It's like a really, really old train system. Oh wow! It takes two hours. Um, and to so, get to Chicago. To get to Chicago. Chicago. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it was just way too much work to go downtown and, and back. Yeah, but still, um, I think what what would be interesting now is that like in terms of when you say electrical engineering, for the people who um, haven't really taken the engineering, I guess, degree during university, what what, what are the major uh, points or major classes that you usually take in an engineering degree like that. Right. So electrical engineering is one of those uh, uh, disciplines that is also extremely broad. Um, so EE, you know, has, has been around for, you know, uh, I would say probably in the mid-19th century, you know, people started doing electronics and analog. And then we get, went into digital. Once we have, you know, semiconductor manufacturing with the digital computers, so it includes both like, you know, analog electronics, like those that go into your um, um, could be your sound car, your audio you know, amplifiers, um, and also digital computers. There's also the communication part, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how um, information is transmitted and uh, information processing, basically. Uh, Digital signal processing, when you send uh, information across wires, how do you receive it, how do you uh, decode it? Um, And there's also um, um, circuit design, also like power systems, um, think about like large uh, electrical grid power systems. Um, So that's more on the more traditional side of electrical engineering. Um, In the recent years, you know, since maybe uh, end of the 1990s and 2000s, uh, most most EEs there's a lot of discipline uh, work in semiconductors. Right. Um, obviously, driving the computer uh, revolution, um, and um, there's also it also covers things like uh, electromagnetics, like radio waves, 
um, lasers. So that's it's it's a huge. Yeah, you you mentioned the whole broad topic because I mean it, there's already like a, this kind of theme that obviously like we work in directly in uh, you know software engineering write a lot of software nowadays. When people say like electronics nowadays, most people assume electronics and computer are synonyms, but it's not true. Electronics is like every single piece of tech that you see out there. You know, like you're mentioning all the circuit boards, all the uh, circuit boards, but also all the circuit grids and all the other thermometers that you see like on the walls, kind of thing. Like those are all like <laughs> yeah. electric stuff, and then. One thing that kind of clicked when you're saying like, oh yeah, figuring out the the signals or how does you know the electricity goes through from one thing to another, is that is that supposed to mimic like you know how how the brain waves work or is that are we still very far from that kind of comparison? <laughs> uh, well, definitely that's it's quite different like how our you know our, the the you know neurology of how the brain works. Um, nothing like the electrical systems that that we have. Okay, so that was just a really stupid thing for me to say but, there. I mean, then. there are some like, there are some parallels. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, you can you can think of the brain as a big computing system. Yeah, um, ex exactly. Yeah. All right, I was a little bit right. <laughs> um, during that time in university, did you actually do any kind of programming? Did you any, use any kind of software, or uh, what did that environment look like? Yeah. So in elect engineering or engineering in general there's there are components of programming um, but mostly geared towards uh, scientific computing and for example things like simulation okay um, less about like building software for people to use but we're using computers to run calculations of could be physical processes or to simulate something that we can use for designs or, or to study the behavior or physical systems that we can model. And so yeah, we, we did um, uh, mainly programming in like MATLAB, yep. um, doing linear algebra. Um, There's some programming at that time. Um, I mean, uh, to the people who says MATLAB is not a programming language, <laughs> I know you're out there. I know you're listening. We'll, we'll debate that on another day, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, MATLAB was uh, really great for uh, scientific computing in general, they really built it for that purpose uh, because it's it's based on uh, linear algebra, and so uh, that was kind of the workhorse in 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 that sort of environment. Uh, yeah. But it's not great for performance. Uh, certainly, if you want to productionize any system, you probably don't want to write it in MATLAB. That's the thing. I think just looking back, um. Especially in university, when people are saying like, "Oh, I'm doing this language over another, I'm doing C instead of Java or PHP, whatever." If you look back at it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, you just gotta. I, I think the the important bit is hardening, understanding the concept, and understanding how to approach a problem, how to like, yeah, what whatever tool you're given, you gotta think before using the tool, oh. right? Like, yeah, I could give you a hammer, but if you don't know how to use it, what's the point? So, um, and then when you mention the linear algebra bit, I'm guessing that's very tied with what you're doing now nowadays in terms of like the direct impact of having done that before. You're still applying the same, you know, logic today to solve some of your problems. Linear algebra definitely is a, a you know foundational underpinning in machine learning um, because you're essentially dealing with uh, large. You know, arrays of numbers and how they how you can model you know uh, your data based on you know how, how these numbers represent uh, the data 
So yeah, linear algebra is a big piece of it. Um, machine learning also relies on a few other things like calculus, uh, statistics. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a combination of of a few. Dude, I just topics. cringed when you said those words again. <laughs> like I've gone through all of them. I love it to death. But like in terms of me being good at it, I, that's two very different categories at this point. So that's really cool though. So that's like all the university life. Did you have time to do any like club life or anything? Because I know in the U.S. Mm. like it's, it's, they're big on it in terms of like joining clubs, so. Yeah, yeah, that was um, really, I think the, the, a, a really awesome experience in U.S. colleges that club life is, you know, apart from studies, that, that's what you're expected to do. Like everybody, you know, finds something to do. So um, early years, I um, was involved in the Taiwanese American Students Club. Yeah, nice. And uh, there I met a few friends and we started an acapella group on campus. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so, you know, doing singing. Um, we had shows every year. Um, I was actually also, uh, um, had a lot of fun, you know, playing uh, rock music with a few friends of mine. Um, so yeah, we, we had a little band, nothing serious. Uh, well, what's just, the name? Just a pastime. What's the name of the band? <laughs> That's what we want to know. It was called Morphin. Morphin. Yeah, that's not the worst name I've heard. Like, that's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not really worse. Cool. I mean, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. But hey, I mean, every anything happens during club life during yeah. during university and stuff. I'm I'm slightly upset that um we haven't had a duet while I sing so often like next to you at my desk and like you haven't joined in in any of my stuff. So we, we might totally. have to rethink about that. Yeah, and yeah. you're also really nice to not say that my singing is complete crap. So like, I haven't heard you sing before. So. Oh, maybe I just mumble most of the time. <laughs> but yeah, that's great. I think like for most people is that like even even when we're talking about like doing whatever and like electrical engineering in university or when I did computer science, like a lot of people just try to find different clubs that are not directly related to what mm. you're studying at the end of the day. But do you feel that like it had a good impact on you anyways on how you ended up maturing in your profession nowadays? Or is it just a really good pastime you had back then? You mean if the extracurricular yeah uh, activities helped in any way definitely I, I would say definitely because i mean academically sure you know you're learning a lot um, but out here in the real world you're dealing with people right? you're dealing with you know working together in groups um, driving towards an idea uh, that you all believe in so i think the the club activities really uh, is an opportunity to to learn and and see how other people approach problems yeah. and work together. I mean, that's uh, what what it's all about. Yeah, I 100% agree with about that because the way how it's set up is that like you don't have to be in engineering to join a music club or anything like that. You know, it's people from all across the different programs, and you end up and it's kind of like the real world. Like we, I don't only work with engineers; I work with all kind of different people, and like that's usually I talk to all kind of people, and that's usually what the whole point of this is to begin with, but. That's uh, that's absolutely cool. And um, so, how long was that? Was that did you do a four year degree then, or it was four years? Yeah. And um, by by towards the end of it, by year three, four, were you um, did you already have like a set mind of what you want to do after? Was it still like up in the air in terms of like should I go to grad school? Should I go straight into you know the the workforce? Like what what was that looking like at that time? Right. Uh, since junior year, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to go to graduate school. And uh, the reason for that was uh, I also had a very um, impactful advisor at that time. 
So I, I was in kind of a, a, a undergraduate research lab uh, under Professor Taflov. Um, he was one of the pioneers of um, computational electromagnetics. Okay. So this means that you can simulate how light interacts with uh, the world of matter uh, using a computer. So uh, I did, you know, um, two years of undergraduate research uh, in his lab. And during that time, he was just so passionate about fundamental research and really drove home the idea that fundamental research is the way forward in terms of improving society and have a broader beneficial impact. So that kind of gave me the motivation to go on to graduate school um, in, you know, continue to, to you know, pursue electrical engineering. Yeah, I think, I think that's such a good um, position to be in to begin with, because uh, I think a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of uh, people at that age specifically, it's like, do I want to go to grad school? Like the same question I was asking before, and it was for me exactly the same thing as that, like, do I want to go to grad school? First of all, I don't think I'd qualify for grad school. So like that option was slightly not, a little bit different, different for me at that think. point. I mean, I've done the numbers. I don't know how that's going to work. I jumped straight into the workforce. So like, I'll do it. But that's actually really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so what was the option there? Did you have the option to stay in um, Northwestern or uh, what did that look like at that time? Yeah, so my advisor definitely encouraged me to stay at Northwestern. Um, he's been at Northwestern many years, and you know he firmly believed that a lot of great work can be done from Northwestern. Uh, from my perspective, I really wanted to go see the broader landscape, so I didn't decide to eventually decide to stay. Um, because I've been at, in you know the Midwest for four years, and you know the U.S. is such a huge you know. I was gonna land. say you already made the jump from Taiwan <laughs> to New Zealand and to the U.S. Like I don't see anything stopping you. So yeah, so I, I applied mostly to the West Coast um, at that point because uh, you know just a very strong tech scene uh, in in the West Coast, and yeah, that's that was my plan. Uh, and and let's say how 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 many percent of those uh, universities accepted? Honestly, I don't even remember. I I think I applied to five or six programs, um, like three or four in the west and a couple out in the east. Right. Yeah. And did you feel like you did something that put you in a really good position to be a good candidate for those stuff? Because I do know some people like are always trying to find ways to you know mm -hmm. get into. I guess the same the same challenges you had back then. Yeah, so I think it benefited me a lot that I started undergraduate research in sophomore year. So I oh. by by the time I was a senior, um, I was able to publish a paper with um, another postdoc. So definitely, if you're thinking about doing you know graduate school, having you know paper publication um, during goes a your long undergrad. Way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a um, I would say for students who have thought about going to graduate school, a lot of them do you know take part in undergraduate research fairly early on, and you can find a supportive advisor who you know can put you under the mentorship of you know another you know more senior member. Typically, you can get one or two papers out before you graduate, and that that will go a long way for for your application. Yeah, 
I, for me, it's completely impressive. I can't recall remembering anybody during my university years that released paper like during their undergrad. So I don't know if it's more common in the States than in Canada, but that is very impressive. And I wasn't expecting that. So, all right, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and the other part is having a strong you know, recommendation letters from yeah. several you know, professors. So definitely if you have classes that you feel strongly you know, motivated about, and that you made an impression on the professor, you know, keep in touch with, with them. And by the time you need an application, you know, that's, that's when they can write you something meaningful. Oh yeah, meaningful. that's completely true. Like I still have a recommendation letter from somebody like 10 years ago that I'm more than happy to use nowadays. Like it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but like I'm, I very much trust the words on it. So, I mean, obviously I might have to ask them if it's still cool, but <laughs> we'll, we'll figure that out. Um, but yeah, so at the, at the end of this whole thing is, uh, Stanford. Stanford, we're very lucky to have you. That's probably how it got. Uh, I, okay, so with Stanford, it's a very different environment from Northwestern, for sure. Um, I mean, even within Stanford, each department has its own culture. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I went to electrical engineering, um, which was a very, let's, let's just say very competitive, um, you know, uh, departments to get into, they are essentially, they, they let you into the program, but whether you can graduate is uh, kind of up to, up to yourself. Um, so for example, I believe when I was there at Stanford, uh, they admit about 200 uh, master's students into the EE program. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, but, if you want to get into the PhD program, you have to take a, uh, a qualifier exam, the quals, and there they only pass uh, half. Okay. They only pass 50% of them. Uh, so you're in this environment where you have to, you know, first keep up with the uh, academic work, but yeah. also prepare for a very grueling uh, set of qualifying exams. When, when, <clears throat> when did those uh, exams happen? Like after a year doing your master's or when basically do you have to do those? Right, so qualifiers you can, you can take it your first year. Okay. Uh, basically everybody takes it their first year. If you fail, you can take it again the second year. Right. And um, if you fail twice, then you are out basically. Okay, well I mean you still get your master's, it's just that you don't yeah, get qualified you, you, you for You get the your PhD. master's and, yeah. and plenty of people do that. They get their master's, they go to Google, Facebook and, and make a, you know, a shit ton of money. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. That's totally great <laughs> too. Um, but yeah, for, for me, oh, for most people, you know, they get to Stanford their first year masters. During the first quarter, they, you know, take classes, but, uh, and then also prepare for qualifiers in January. Okay, well, I mean, there's yeah. no loss of not doing them, if you know what I mean. Like, if you're gonna be there for masters, like, yeah. You could, I guess you could qualify and decide not to do your yeah. PhD after, right? Yeah, so absolutely. I think from anybody in that position, if they were up to me, which it would never be, but yeah. um, I definitely would have taken the calls anyways and tried. If I, if I got it, got some bragging rights. If I didn't have it, I was like, oh, I'll just graduate with my master's. Yeah. It'll be... Yeah, yeah. yeah. The consolation prize. You can just yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my kind of world, you know. But it was kind of, it's cool that uh, the transition, it was like straight from undergrad electric, electrical engineering straight to master's electrical mm -hmm. engineering which made sense, because I do know some people who did a master's on a completely different topic than they did during undergrad, so yeah. um, that was quite cool. Um, needless to say, you qualified for uh, the PhD? 
thank God. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like a lot of stuff that you've done is like very calculated and like it really make is justified. You know, like a lot of stuff that you've done. And I think, I think, um, what were the benefits? Because I think you mentioned that it wasn't exactly the full length of a master's and a full length of a PhD. Is it considered like kind of like an express way or? There isn't really a, a combined program. Like you have to finish your master's, uh, like all the courses for your master's, uh, and as well as the you know PhD requirements. So there isn't like a fast track thing. Um, how quickly you graduate, I think a lot of it depends on your advisor. You know what kind of projects you get to work on. Yeah, and. Um, that ultimately determines how, how quickly you can finish. What's um What's the range though? What's the fastest that you could get a PhD? And what's the longest that people have been sucked into it? I've I've seen people like the, the quickest I've seen is you know three and a half four years. Okay, whoa. All um, right. The upper bound, you know, sky's the limit. Like people 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 have done like ten year yeah uh, PhDs. Wait, so that's three and a half years for what? For just the PhD or the PhD Both. and the masters? Masters and PhD. Oof. All right. Well, I mean. That is, but that's, uh, it's very rare. It's very rare, and I can imagine the the advisor has to be very um, kind of understanding and collaborative, and you know, let you let you off with a with a simple conference paper or something like that. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it always has to have a reason at the end. Um, so I mean, so far the story, I'm still confused in terms of like, how did this all become today? How did how did we all become? <laughs> building one of the sickest models I've seen around. Like, so I, I'm still trying to bridge a gap, but I think like one thing to wrap off of the Stanford bit was like, what was the lifestyle? As in like, Stanford is known worldwide. It's a, it's a name that people know. What what was the impressions when you got there, I guess? They didn't meet your expectation of Stanford that everybody around the world knows about or, you know. For sure, it was a huge jump between when I was at Northwestern and Stanford. Um, at Northwestern, you know, um, the EE department wasn't, you know, known to be the strongest. You know, that there's very, very strong uh, um, uh, professors there too. But when I get to Stanford, you really felt that like, oh my gosh, everybody is like a genius. Yeah. Like you can spend, you know, so much time, you know, uh, learning the material and somebody, you know, just blows you out of the water. And they, you know, everybody knows so much uh, in, in their own way. Um, so yeah, it's definitely like a different league. And okay. You, you just feel like you can learn so much from from everybody. But there's also some down to earth aspect to it still in terms of like yeah, yeah. People were still around. I guess like around the same age, anyways. We were still young at that time, and like yeah, yeah. Any any young people will do eventually do something stupid. So I yeah, I don't think I've I've ran into too many assholes. Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> Shout out to all the Stanford people then. <laughs> that's great. Um, but that's really cool because, I mean, I, we don't always get to talk to Stanford grads and how they live their lives off of there. So I, I always appreciate this, especially I didn't grow up in the States and like either way. So that's my opportunity to do so. Um, in between all this stage of uh, undergrad and grad and PhD though, did you manage to fit in any kind of internship in between or any kind of like, I guess, part-time jobs or something like that? At Northwestern, I did uh, internships during the summer. Um, because most people, you know, find something to do 
during the summer uh, there's no school program or you, you can stay on you can stay to take additional credits but I didn't want to do that yeah so yeah at, at Northwestern I went to Intel for for both uh, junior and senior year summers geez the uh, Intel yeah I went the to North. Oregon uh, Hillsborough Oregon um, they have I think three or four like huge uh, fab so fabrication facilities in Oregon. Okay. So very large facilities. Basically, the entire town is you know is working dumb. for Intel. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was there uh, for two two summers. They were very uh, gracious and and giving me a a uh, kind of independent research project. Okay. So. Um, the team that I was with was um, uh, building uh, models to to understand uh, electrical interconnects. So interconnects are kind of wires that connects between your CPU and your memory. And the thought at the time is that the electrical interconnect will be a major bottleneck for computing because it takes a lot of power to send you know, signals back and forth. And it will be uh, very difficult to scale to you know, faster speeds and, and lower power. So yeah, we're, we're doing uh, computer models uh, on interconnects. That's, I mean, that, that, that ties directly into what you were doing. So that's, that's actually like reasonable. Because I mean, like sometimes internships will be like, oh, come in and do this. And you do absolutely <laughs> nothing of what you're related yeah. to is supposed to yeah. do. Um, so Oregon in there, what did the campus look like? Because I mean, like, you know, nowadays all the big tech companies, like a lot of products and it was like, you know, free, free lunch, the campus has like 36 floors and all that. What, what did that look like at, uh, at that headquarter? Yeah. Is that a headquarter? Uh, it was not a headquarter, oh, um, right. <laughs> but it, it's a, a huge, you know, building nevertheless. Um, so Intel is a very uh, traditional hardware company. And in contrast to software companies, hardware companies are, um, let's just say it's, it's less fun uh, in, in the work environment sense. Everybody has cubicles. It's very office-like. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, told, you know, it's, it's very generic in terms of its layout. Okay. Um, but actually, I really appreciated the, um, the cubicles. I am firmly... Uh, in the camp that open offices kills productivity. Oh yeah. Um, so when it, it you was... have Perry sitting next to you as well, <laughs> that that's an added productivity boost. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, actually, um, this is the geek MD. Is what hardware that they gave you, or did they, did they give you any hardware? Did they even fly you out there? Like these are all the questions that I have. Like yeah, as a yeah, as a... they they fly you out there. Um, it was a it was a standard. Well, at that time, if you know. Um, I, th I think it was a standard like Dell laptop. Um, in hardware companies, you don't like it's it's rare to use a MacBook. Yeah. Um, because most of the scientific computing software runs off of Windows, um, un unless you go into like supercomputing uh, and that type of things. So then you start to use Linux and and Unix. Okay, that's that's really cool. I mean, especially even from I guess from a younger perspective, is that like you just get into these like massive companies and like yeah, they might look a little bit more corporate or whatever, but you still get the chance to do so many different things that you don't get to do in school and all that. So, I, I definitely do um, envy, jealous, very jealous of uh, you know never getting the chance to go into a 
Intel office or anything. But um, I mean, that's not the only thing that you did, though. I mean, did you do any other internships during uh, during undergrad, or is it just that was the only internship um, at Stanford? It was all fully focused on research. I mean, justifiably. Um, yeah. Oh, actually, my first year at Stanford, I um, the, the first summer because I haven't gotten into a research lab yet. Um, I went back to Taiwan and went to work for a a venture capital VC. Um, yeah. Yep. I just thought that I see what it's all about. Um, see the work that they do. Um, you know, try something different. During, that's during that's one year. of the questions I've definitely asked myself. Like, what is it? What is it about VC? Like, we talk about this quite often in terms of like, I think one of the articles that we read about the other is like, how does a VC make money, kind of thing. Like, what was what was I mean? What was was your business there? Why were you there? What did they ask <laughs> you to do there? And what did you find out? Obviously, given my more technical background, I was there mainly to do you know industry research. Okay. Um, so when they have potential. Um, uh, Entrepreneurs coming in for you know funding proposals. Um, I would you know go and visit the factory, see and understand the technology that they are working on. So in Taiwan, a lot of the technology is around um, electronic manufacturing. Yeah, Foxconn so, isn't that like a big thing yep, over there? Foxconn is uh, um, uh, Taiwan in, in China. Um, so at that time, I was I was looking at a lot of cases doing, for example, uh, touchscreen manufacturing. Okay. Um, at that time, you know, late two thousands, there's a huge wave of renewable energy. So solar was extremely oh, wow. big. So yeah, touchscreen and solar, um, and also various uh, electronic components that, that are manufactured in Taiwan. Were were the numbers like mind o- like eye opening kind of thing? Did you did you see yourself like looking at crazy amount of money between transactions and everything or um not nothing too crazy okay too crazy um the the vc was mainly doing you know a a a round and b a series series a and b um so yeah not nothing too too big okay Um, but even having that exposure and even working at startups nowadays today is like you could definitely see like you know you definitely learn so much from doing that and Did they have better perks than Intel, or was it still no, quite? No, in uh, Asia, <laughs> the perks don't even think about it. Well, they don't <laughs> exist in Asia, dude. Oh man, I worked, I worked for a startup briefly in Hong Kong, and like yeah. it was all right. Like it definitely yeah. wasn't like the perks that we get like most of the time. So that's what that's something that I always love to ask. You know, just different parts <laughs> of the world, any parts mm-hmm. of the world, whether Taiwan, Intel, uh, Taiwan, U.S., New Zealand, all this kind of stuff. So. Um, but there, there is a point where you graduated, right? There's a point where you spent oh, yeah. so much time graduating and all that. <laughs> and I think we're finally getting to, are we getting close to the bit? Where, where, to. Where's the bit where we got all this data and all this stuff coming in? That's where. So what happened after you uh, graduated, graduated from Stanford, sorry? Right. Uh, so my Stanford work was um, on optics and uh, optoelectronics, which means a combination of electronics and optical components. And uh, one of the you know, natural industry to go into is uh, LEDs, uh, light emitting diodes. So light emitting diodes is a very efficient form of lighting um, produced in, in, within semiconductors. So I went to a startup uh, called Sora uh, after I graduated because they had this entirely new way of making LEDs. 
And their founder was a Nobel laureate, um, Professor Shuji Nakamura. From, Jeez, right. um, yeah, uh, from UCSB, Santa Barbara. So I was super impressed by the technology and the people there and really think that you know, we could make a difference by building very efficient light bulbs. And that's really cool. And I guess the biggest uh, example of LED, like is it fair to say that you know some cars in front, you have like the old ones yeah. that are like yellowy, that's not mm-hmm. LED. And the ones that has like the sick beams, those are yep. LED, right? Yep. That's, yep. How, that's how I recognize that. Oh. <laughs> I just take examples like that. So um, did they require you to like start coding stuff there or? Uh, so how I kind of started more coding was we were bringing up our manufacturing capabilities and um, each wafer uh, where the LEDs are produced um, contains you know uh, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of devices, so little little LEDs, and we have to test each one of them on a device tester. So that generated a lot of data, so um, all sorts of characteristics of the LEDs. So I when I started, I started uh, building a database to record all these um, measurements. And over time, as the data grew, um, there's, a, there's more need to do analysis on you know, what makes a, a good LED, how do you tell when the LED works or don't work, um, and how do you improve the manufacturing process through data analysis. Yeah. Can, can we backtrack real quickly? And when you said, I built a database, like this is, nobody, <laughs> nobody just starts saying that without, so like this is the, back, back then, you know, nowadays, like if you build a database, like you just run something, you can run like a quick Mongo, Postgres, whatever you want, and like it spins up quite quickly. Was it like that back then? When, when, well, when you this, tried to this do wasn't it? that many years ago. This was, okay, like, yeah. you know, 2012, 2013. Right. Um, so we were using uh, Microsoft SQL Server. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was on-premise. Um, most hardware companies haven't started using the cloud uh, back then. So yeah, we set up our own you know SQL Server instance and you know wrote our data loaders to to take data in and out. Yeah. The database. Int- yeah. Even that. And um, did you previously have the experience of I guess starting a database from scratch or? No, no, that was, I picked it up uh, right there. Um, I had no idea what was a database when I started. <laughs> yeah, database? people Yeah, you people take it for Excel gra- sheets? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, Excel sheets are a database. No, I'm kidding. I, um, I, I do love it that some people just take databases as a granted kind of thing. Like, I mean, I had one database course during university and I thought I knew everything about it, but boy, was I wrong. Like, and also, I didn't even do that great in that class. So, But it's so good that even considering your background, doing all this crazy good study on all the electrical engineering, and then you were like, I got to build a database. Like, <laughs> did, you, did you find like, re- uh, uh, like documents? Or like, did you find those useful in terms of just like being able to? Yeah, it's, it's similar to, I guess, any software developments. You, you look for resources online. Um, Boom. Microsoft's <laughs> you know, SQL Server documentation, I don't think it was that readable. Okay, so fine. <laughs> you had to find a lot of just examples you know, here and there. That's actually quite cool, because <laughs> I mean, like, I do know a lot of like, 
electrical engineer, not a lot. I do know electrical engineers that ended up being, you know, software de developers or even like working with, you know, all kinds of actual writing software and that. And it's definitely more common than not. As in, like a lot of people, when they after their university, they're like, oh, I wish I went into comp sci or I wish yeah. I did software engineering. Mm -hmm. It's not true. You could pick it up any other time after. You could like your example. You're like, I had to build a database. Well, boom, there you go. Kevin's on the job and he absolutely gets it done. So. What what kind of use did you see it by the time uh, by the time it like picked up a bit of momentum and you had all this data? What kind of use mm -hmm. do you, did you see people use it for? Or right, so the biggest advantage of building a, a very structured database to keep track of the manufacturing process is that in the LED manufacturing line, or for that matter, any semiconductor manufacturing, there are many steps. Yeah. So. You know, from start to finish, the process takes about two months, and there's okay. literally like hundreds of uh, process steps that you have to track. And so, what the database gives us is a full traceability of what each LED went through. So, when you look at the end results, you can correlate back to the process parameters: what made better LEDs, what made them uh, brighter, what made them last longer. So really building that um, a correlation and be able to experiment on the improvements was, was a huge deal. Yeah, that, that must be crazy in terms of like performance-wise even, because that, did that come up often where it's like, oh wait, our, I guess software isn't performant enough, we can't run these numbers, or was that like... Yeah, for sure, for sure. As we, as we grow in, in the quantity and, and frequency of, of uh, data, um, that eventually became quite a big deal. So, you know, uh, over time I had to learn, you know, how to optimize databases, you know, figure yeah. out bottlenecks, indexes, and... Sharding? Uh, Something like that? Well, at that time we, we aren't that big yet to have to use sharding, um, but um, that would, would have been the natural, you know, uh, next step. Yeah, to it. How, how long did you end up um, staying at Sora then? How long did you do that for? I was here for six years. Wow, for six years. Yeah. So yeah. you could definitely see how, I guess, the initial seed that you planted at that database and like kind of just grew <laughs> up at the, like, you know, into, pretty sure they still use it today. I probably, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, Kevin, Kevin's a legend over there. So, um, but yeah, after, after spending, um, Couple years though, where did you go on to after? Right, so towards the end, you know, the last two years at Sora, I, for some reason, I don't even know where, maybe just reading, you know, about, you know, where technology is going, I got really interested in machine learning just from, you know, seeing how things evolve, you know, what the potential of the technology could be. So I was like, yeah, this is a really cool field. I wonder if we can use it uh, in manufacturing. And so at that time, Sora was uh, starting to build a smart LED bulb okay. that has basically it's a, a, a internet connected bulb that has sensors that can sense occupancy. It has an, uh, an audio uh, microphone that can uh, listen to sounds. It has an ambient light sensor. So I was like, yeah, maybe there's some place for you know some machine learning algorithms to kind of uh, uh, give some intelligence to to this bulb. So um, yeah, just talking to you know the 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 VP who was running that program, he said, yeah, you know, go ahead and, and prototype some 
some uh, wow, machine like learning models and a green you know, light, we'll, you know? we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. Yeah, so that, that's kind of where I started dabbling in machine learning and you know, taking you know, online courses to figure out what, what the hell uh, that I needed to, to learn. Um, so a combination of both you know, uh, some projects at work and just learning uh, yeah, what, the fundamentals. I'm, I'm really interested in when you said something like, oh, got to whether do certification or whether get some outside resource to help you with that. Yeah. Um, the, I think it's the gap that usually phases me a bit is that like today I'm an engineer, I'm a software engineer, but the thing's like, how do I even start to work with data or even like just having something convincing to be like, this is machine learning. So what was like some concrete like step that you had to do? Did you like, so given that you had loads of data and loads of things, like what was one thing, for example, that made that into machine learning, for example? Did you use a software that turned like TensorFlow and then turned that all into it? Or what was uh, the point that really just made it into just looking at data and then turning into? Yeah, so the core of, you know, the, the, the core objective of machine learning, or one core objective of machine learning is to make accurate predictions. So your system is given some inputs and you want it to produce accurate predictions of, you know, what, what the outcome would be. So that, that's a very simple way to think about it. Um, it doesn't even need to require you know, complicated frameworks. Uh, you can build very simple linear models with a few parameters. You can write it you know, with a single line uh, of equation. Um, and that can count as you know, making a prediction. Um, oh, so like I could just run like any kind of I guess Node.js app and just like write some yeah. kind of prediction. Yeah, you, prediction. Can, you, can, you can write simple uh, um, equations to to give you the predictions you want. Obviously, you have to optimize the accuracy you know, your, I guess, your equation, or... your model to uh, inform the the right outcomes. Yeah. Um, but you know the the model itself and what it does um, is t totally dependent on how how you want to structure it. Okay. Um, obviously, now there's very powerful and advanced tools to. Uh, use for under different circumstances, but but, but yeah, at, at that time, you know, you always start with the simplest. Um, I am a big believer of you know not overcomplicating things. You know, do the simplest thing that you that that solves the problem. Yeah. Um, so at that time, you know, um, I was building mostly uh, simple linear models. There are some you know tree-based models that. Uh, people have found to be very uh, general, generally applicable. So there's a few different model types that's, that are uh, yeah, those, used. Yeah, those models you were talking about, where do you grab them from? Like, okay, where do you grab them from and how do you use them? So like you have a very specific use case right now where you want to use it. So mm -hmm. yeah, how, how, basically the question is how do you implement them? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Nowadays, most you know, applications don't require you to write the models yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a simple package that you import um, to to your you know to your program, and you simply feed it the inputs that you know you collected, and you tell it what outputs eventually comes out, and the program essentially maps that uh, transformation for you. Right. So you know, very simple example. You know, people always use is like predicting housing prices. Oh, that's right? a good one. 
right? So you give the model, you know, the, the zip code, maybe, you know, the time of the year, how many bedrooms are there yeah. in the house, and it will do a reasonably uh, good job at estimating what the price of that house could be. And like for, for the user, basically, it's, it's a black box, right? You just put in some inputs and something comes out and like it kind of answers the question that you had initially where it's like, yeah. Yeah. and um, that's really cool. So that's like for the people that are using models. Have you, or how long have you uh, spent time like building the actual black box or like the algorithms mm -hmm. inside mm -hmm. of it? Do you still do a lot of that today? Did you, do you do less nowadays and use more of like stuff that exists already? Like what kind of balance we're talking about? Yeah, so... I don't think, I would say like 95 or more percent of the work uh, doesn't really involve um, coming up with new model algorithms. Um, so let me maybe back up a little bit. In the field of you know, machine learning, um, you could be more on the applied side, which is taking existing algorithms and frameworks and customizing it to your uh, application or your needs. Mm -hmm. There's also the more research and academic routes where you do study algorithms like how to you know, come up with a different architecture. You know, um, so that would be on more the academic research side. You would okay, do yeah. more of that um, mostly in, in academia, uh, but there are you know, big, big companies that invest a lot of time into fundamental research. Uh, in machine learning, and you publish papers, okay. go to conferences. That literally sounds like R&D, basically. That's like, it is. That's yes. literally the, you know, the concept of that. So. Um, and so far, my, my path is very applied. Okay. Um, there is simply you know, no real uh, time uh, in the product lifecycle to, to do that type of work. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you basically go online, find something that suits your need, and try to make it work. Um, you, you know, pre-process the data to make sure that your model can is compatible with it, and also productionizing it such that it can be served, uh, you know, in in in, it, in its application. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because um, I mean, just in context, what what a lot of stuff you do nowadays is like text speech and voice stuff like that's mm -hmm. really your area at the moment and that's where like it's absolutely amazing to see how you you're able to use that data set and like just turn it into something that is you know concrete usable and like imagine a store and you have like oh there's x amount of people going in and then you know all these kind of like relatable stuff that people see mm -hmm. we end up getting this kind of information from like data that doesn't make any sense so basically it's just putting like some human understanding into a set of data that is all like digital and everything so yeah that's a really good way to put it um, in terms of you know the the machine learning world you're taking data which is very abstract right it's it sits on a, a computer server it's a bunch of numbers how do you take that data and create something that is can interface with humans. Yeah, and um, actually this just reminds me, I think there's a company out in New York called Enigma, and their whole business model is basically that. I think what was interesting with them was that they would take some set of data of like uh, how many fire accidents happen uh, within a year in specific areas in New York, and then they would partners with like the fire department, you know, to be able to predict and prevent all these kind of issues. So I think that's one of, you know, the relatable cases of 
it's very human, me and you, to know like, oh, we want to prevent all these like, you know, fire incidents, whatever. But this abstract data that comes in of like looking at how often it happens over there, mm. there's a lot of people that does the hard work of turning that data into yeah. something useful at the end. And like, I feel like you're definitely in that position of doing something similar with that. So, um, but yeah, how, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how, how, how did you end up at Notable? How did we end up meeting at Notable at the end of over here? You were at Sora, you did loads of great stuff there, even just starting your own database and even <clears throat> you were saying like putting in machine learning models and all that. And um, how, yeah, how did that momentum end up like, you know, making you even just explore more of the world? Right. Um, so after Sora, I was able to um, land a data science job at Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare is uh, one of the largest healthcare IT company in the US. So there we are looking at using um, building machine learning services to help improve the healthcare um, IT system, the workflow, you know, how information is uh, handled between providers and uh, payers. Right, so at that point, you were a data scientist. Like, what, what, what were you at Sora then? Were you still a data analyst, data science? Were you still so a, or you were just? At Sora, the title is just always just a scientist. Um, okay. It wasn't very specific, because I was doing you know half physical science. Oh, so right, studying yeah. semiconductors and half you know doing data engineering and data science. Okay, so and then when by the time you got to change, it was like, Boom. It was purely yeah data, data, data scientists like get get the data in there, get all that. <laughs> and um, when you were saying like, were you able to transfer the skills as in like the 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 way of tackling problems and the way of modelizing all of that? Was it quite similar to do at Change? Was it well, you know, right? So at Change, certainly the fundamentals of machine learning, statist statistical learning, and you know, Python programming was all you know, directly uh, applicable. Uh, what I found in you know, large organizations and driving you know, new solutions in enterprises, it often comes down to a lot more um, human interactions and you know, driving okay. business plans and communicating what the model does and how another business unit can use the outputs of your model. So a lot of it comes down to forming that product uh, framework and communicating that. Um, so yeah, working in, in that environment uh, also brings in another dimension of, of learning um, that yeah. was really tough um, in the beginning because you had to navigate such a huge organization and lots of you know, um, inputs, I guess, from people yeah. kind of chiming in and trying to get every, you know, detail right. right and all that. So I definitely appreciated the time, you know, just working on technical work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> towards, you know, my, I think I, I was here about a year and towards the end, I was spending, you know, probably 80% of the time in meetings and calls. And, oh, wow. Um, and yeah, it's a very different type of work. Well, well, yeah, that also implies like the the importance of the uh, outcome of all the models. Mm -hmm. That that really emphasizes yeah. on the fact that this could change. It could be a game changer for the company. Yeah. It could be something that completely changes the direction of what something somebody wants to build, or yeah. or something that like is just disproving a theory that they previously had, which is never a case that you really <laughs> want. So that's actually really cool. And then, um, so in terms of like software-wise, by that point, at change. What kind of software did you use as a data data scientist? Right. So we were building everything on AWS. 
Okay. Um, we were heavily leveraging the AWS ecosystem. Um, so uh, we were a, a Python shop. So every you know all, all the programs are in Python. We don't have our own kind of end user uh, products because we actually work with other end, you know business uh, groups to improve their workflow. And so our outputs are usually a API that they can call. So they would send us you know a request. We would output some sort of prediction for them, and they would use that in their products for the end user. So our infrastructure was um, uh, mostly around um, uh, EC2, so like uh, virtual machines. Yeah. Um, we have SageMaker, so these are like API endpoints that serves the models. Um, and you know, a, a fair bit of um, data engineering stack like Spark, um, and I did I did a university project on Spark, <laughs> dude. It's so funny. I mean, I could talk about all about that, but I, I really do like all the software that you're talking about. Is that like those SageMaker, sorry, and all those environment? They're definitely like. Would you say that nowadays they're like top of the league kind of thing? They're top of the the game. Basically, you got TensorFlow, you got SageMaker. Do you think those are like the you know the the creme de la creme at the moment? <laughs> there are certainly uh, many other you know platforms, um, but I would say those are fairly common now. Um, so SageMaker, like AWS, has you know pushing really hard on SageMaker. Um, they want that to be the one-stop shop for kind of machine learning services mm -hmm. for them. Um, so if you use AWS, you know that that's the, the you know the, the platform to use. Yeah, I think I think so far everything is really great because we can really see that uh, if you want to know how to use it and really know how to like models work, or whatever, you have to put your own time into researching or getting the. Uh, certification or even just taking online courses to mm -hmm. do that because I think for a lot of people that wants to get into it like if we take me for example I do have a background in tech but it's like how much do I need more to know how to do what you do you know what's the what's the gap in terms of that and I feel like that's always usually what is like the scary bit the uncertain bit of oh why am I not doing it why am I not jumping into this because like I could literally start doing it tomorrow because when you're seeing like oh just spin up a node program or whatever, just spin up like a tiny program, write a couple of lines that will work at the end, so. Yeah, depends on the outcome that you want. But I would say, given a software engineering foundation, it is much easier to do this than if you do not have a software engineering yeah. uh, foundation. So if you already know how to program, uh, machine learning engineering isn't that too difficult for That's you. That's the thing. Um, if you're focused on the applied side, um, there isn't really that much requirement on, you know, math, you know, statistics and linear algebra or calculus. Certainly helps if you are strong in those areas. Uh, but really on the applied side, um, you could uh, build already a lot of services without without having that's that. the thing and it's also not to discourage anybody who doesn't even have a science or tech background to even try getting into it yeah. same story as somebody who doesn't have a science tech background and getting into building some web page or whatever do you think that could be the same you know in the near future like you would have these people that never had any uh, programming experience and dive straight into machine learning dive straight into data science and all that i certainly think it's it's very possible uh the way that the industry is moving is that you know the tech you know, giants are trying to reduce the barrier to machine learning. Yeah, everything that you know is available on Google Cloud, on Microsoft Azure, AWS. They want 
everybody to, to use machine learning, to make it as simple as possible. Uh, that said, if you don't have good intuition and you know, foundational knowledge of machine learning, you could be wasting a lot of time. Um, sometimes you may not realize why you know, your model works in, you know, in training or when you built it, but yeah. when you put it out in the world, it performed much worse. So there's a lot of nuances that you know, either takes more you know, foundational knowledge or experience. I was gonna, that's, that's where the... You know, yeah, I was going to say, because it feels like a lot of stories so far. Is that like, did you ever have like a mentor specifically for machine learning or, or like any kind of data science? Or was it always you that really pushed a barrier every time of yourself trying to... Not a formal mentor. I certainly, when I wanted to, when I wanted to get into the field, I called up all my friends in data science and asked them nice. you know, what, you know, what, what they recommend and what kind of paths they went through. Um, so definitely you know, talk to people that, that are doing it. Um, and this is why we're here today. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure if anybody reaches out to you about this kind of topic, you're more than happy to answer yeah, those yeah. kind of questions. So, um, I think that's really just the interesting bit. I think, I mean, just to finally wrap up, you know, because we there's so much good content so far. Um, to wrap up in the nice way, I guess. Uh, nowadays, at Notable, you're still doing a lot of the similar work, but you know, yeah. different. I guess when we say like just a different industry at the end is like it's just different problems to solve. Yeah. But you're still applying some, you know, techniques that you've learned over the years of working the uh, different models and there's different software that are top of the league that we're talking about nowadays. I think a lot of people for, I guess, like advice in general for somebody who wants to get into it, whether they have a tech or non-tech background, mm -hmm. what's the good advice to get them motivated to go into that direction? Mm. So first of all, um, obviously you, you know, should have some idea of where you want to go in, in three to five years, whether you want to be in the academic routes, like doing you know, research, or you want to build something that directly impacts some consumers, some products. Uh, so that, that will take you on different paths. But say you, you want to get into the ap application side. Mm -hmm. I would say for machine learning, uh, it's probably you know, uh, 60, 70% programming and another 40%, you know, math and machine learning foundations. So if you don't have a programming background, definitely uh, make sure you are comfortable doing programming first. Then um, some understanding of data analysis, like, you know, doing analysis of um, um, data that you're interested in. It could be sports, could be, you know, music, could be, you know, something that interests you uh, instead of, you know, just pulling some uh, data set that you cannot relate to. I, I agree with that because you were saying like find a use case, find something yeah. that uh, at the end of the output, it's something that you could look at be like, oh, for X amount of times this happened. Like, yeah. it's so satisfying whenever those kind of thing um, make sense. Those when those when you read it as a human and it makes sense to you, that's always the most satisfying bit. So yeah, so find something that's, you know, you think would be awesome to, to kind of bring to life, then, you know, just embark your your journey from there. It's everybody really takes a different path. I don't think there's a straight path to this. Well, that, that said, there are, you know, formal data science and machine learning programs now in yeah, you know, and uni basically all yeah, all universities. Um, even when I was starting this, um, that there isn't programs that, you know, formal programs. So 
that's the other path. You could enroll in a program to do mm-hmm. it. A lot of people also take boot camps. So, you know, a three-month boot camp uh, for data science. You build a project at the end. Um, and depending on the program, some people do see pretty good success uh, in landing jobs. So what I'm making out of it is that, like, there's so many different ways of getting into it. And all you need is just that one step, that first step of... Just got to start, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that because you could apply that to anything. <laughs> but specifically yeah, in our exactly. case, we're talking about machine learning and data science. So uh, that's great, though. Is there anywhere that people could follow you or if ever they want to reach out to you? Yeah, I'm very inactive on social media. Um, I do use LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, definitely can find me on, on there. Perfect. I'll definitely try to link that below somewhere. So you, if you guys have any good questions of machine learning, if you just want to have like, you know, more insight and even mentorship off of it, Kevin's definitely your guide. No doubts about that. But anyways, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I'm going to catch you guys on the next one. So peace out, guys.